the cosmic void. Onward it stretches into infinity, matched in depth and vastness by but one thing, the human imagination. We present now a story from this, the greater of two endless realms. Join us as we enter a gate beyond. One of the most iconic monsters of world folklore is the Kraken, represented as a giant octopus or squid, capable of bringing down even the largest sailing vessels. Our first story this week involves a modern-day encounter with such a creature in the most unorthodox and light-hearted manner possible. Taken from the collection Creatures, 30 Years of Monsters, edited by John Langan and Paul Tremblay, copyright 2011. This is The Kraken by Michael Kelly. The Kraken, scaly and oozing slime, was on the kitchen counter, pulsed and moved across the formica and eased itself onto the bottom of the food-encrusted stainless steel sink. I stood on wobbly knees, staring down at the bulbous creature. Two round eyes swung up, stared at me with a keen alien intelligence, unblinking, waiting. I thought I recognized those sad eyes. Pentacles reached feeling across the bottom of the sink. One slimy appendage found a bit of lasagna stuck to the wall of the sink, hugged it off, and shoved it into its dark, wet mouth. My stomach roiled. My head spun. My legs buckled. I grabbed the end of the counter and held fast. I felt like a small ship tossed around in a violent sea. My own fault, really. Can't handle the booze like I once could. Christ, what a mistake. Kenny's fault, too, I guess. Hadn't seen the bastard in years, and he calls me up, out of the blue, says he wants to get together, like old times' sake. The two of us, tearing up the town, like back in college. Except we are not in college anymore, and I'm not a kid anymore. And holy mother of fuck, I can't remember the last time I drank that much beer. But yeah, Kenny was always able to talk me into almost anything. Like the time we set off a smoke bomb in biology class. Crazy as shit, you know? Always preceded by a few hits off the bong or hash pipe, it made Kenny all moon-eyed and mystical. Not the crazy as shit, the drugs. Turned him into all gooey and sentimental. Another time, we snuck into the observatory after hours so Kenny could use the giant telescope so he could peer up into the night sky. Bastard was always looking up at the stars, expectant. Like he wasn't watching for something, no. It was more like he was waiting for something. Him and his gooey eyes. There's something out there, Kenny said, wistful. Something else. And he turned to me, shaking, his voice all syrupy. There has to be. Last time I saw the crazy fucker was when we went down to the marina in the dead of night and broke into the main clubhouse, took out that ring of keys, and found that sleek boat, the cat. And yeah, took the damn thing out onto the lake. The water all dark and shiny, full of green mystery and shards of moonlight sparkling off its surface. More crazy-ass shit. 
Penny and me surging along the water, throttle thrown open, the spray rising up, soaking us, and us laughing, neither of us having ever driven a boat before, you know. And it's funny, real funny, because this is really stupid. But we don't care because, yeah, we're high or drunk or both. Pirates. That's what we are. Fucking pirates. Adventurers on the high sea. And I tell Kenny that. I say, we're on the high seas, get it? And Kenny, sweet, doe-eyed Kenny, screws his face up thinking. Thinking real hard. Then he gets it, you know, high seas. And cackles like, well, like a peg-legged pirate with one good eye and a foul-mouthed parrot. Like any respectable pirate. A hearty chortle. Avast, ye matey. We take turns at the wheel, shooting along like the madmen we are, turning circles, doubling back, jumping the wakes, up, then thunk. Man, it's some funny shit. Really, at least for a little while. Soon we are so wet and stoned that it's not fun anymore. You know the feeling, right? You're high and pretty much anything seems like a good idea. Anything. But that feeling, like all feelings, dissipates, fritters away. So we stop the boat. And now we are floating on the lake and the boat starts bobbing. And I'm reminded of when I was a kid and the one time that my dad took me fishing before he decided that a wife and kid were too much for one man and bailed on us. Dad got me to cast a line out and attached to the line is a small red and white ball called a bob, oddly enough. And I get a bite and Bob starts, well, bobbing, then down. And the boat, this slick little thing we've owned, borrowed, starts going up and down. Kind of like that red and white bob, you know? And my stomach is doing the same thing, rising, falling, and bile in the back of my throat is like corrosive acid. Kenny looks green. He jumps up, wobbles to the edge of the boat, and leans over. He gags, and a stream of yellow puke shoots from his mouth. He straightens, wipes his mouth, turns, and grins at me. Hugh Keating Crin, all green and yellow and crusty. He's a sight, yeah. How about another hit? He asks, reaching into his wet pocket and retrieving a small foil pouch. And then this huge tentacle reaches up, all scaly and slimy and smelling of puke. I blink. Yup, there it is, rising up, a huge fucking tentacle, gripping fish guts, and it wraps around Kenny's waist, yanks him off his feet, and his puke-eating grin vanishes, and his eyes bug out, fish eyes, and then, briefly, he's smiling, eyes and mouth wide, and I've never seen him so happy, so animated. Then whoosh, he's gone, overboard, and all that's left is a small foil package on the boat's floorboards, you know, and the smell of dead fish guts and vomit. So, being the friend I am, I stand there and blink. I'm good at that. Blink again. Still no Kenny. Still gone. But I blink, shake my head, because, really, it's the hash or shrooms or whatever the hell we ingested from that foil pouch. I probably should have asked Kenny what it was. But it didn't matter. He always got good shit, and it hadn't killed me yet. Kenny doesn't return. He's gone. Vanished. Oof. I stagger to the edge of the boat. My stomach clenches. I retch. Nothing comes up. The water below is still gleaming darkly. No sign of Kenny and no sign of the Kraken. Kraken? What is a Kraken, I think? And where the hell did that come from? Then I remember. 
Me and Kenny used to listen to the Scandinavian death metal, you know, and one of the bands was the Kraken. All of their cover art on their CDs had this beast, a big huge motherfucking octopus that lives in the deep sea and attacks ships. Pirate ships. The Mastimades. But there can't be a Kraken, can't be a beast. No. It's the drugs, baby. The hallucinogens. Kenny has fallen over. And he's probably dead now because I'm sitting here thinking about Norwegian death metal when I should be saving my friend. So I jump overboard, into the lake. And it's a lake, for goddamn sakes, not a fucking sea, so there can't be a Kraken. And it is cold, you know. Cold. And I sober up real fast and swim about. But I can't see when I'm under. It's too dark. And it's so cold I'm beginning to tighten up my arms and legs like lead or some sort of heavy metal. <laughs> or Scandinavian death metal, dig? And I'm chuckling because it's funny and scary and fucked up. And I guess I'm not all that sober because I'm making self-referential jokes while Kenny is drowning. I'm sinking too. So I struggle over to the side of the boat and manage to pull my wet, skinny-ass body back on board. No sign of Kenny. Nothing. The lake is calm, motionless, thing at rest. And that was the last time I saw Kenny. Until last night. When he called, I didn't recognize his voice. It was garbled. He had self- But it was him, all right. We chatted about the old times, as if nothing had happened. Nothing had changed. His voice warbling in and out, as if there was some sort of interference on the line. I told him I thought he was dead, and he laughed. Laughed like a madman, like a drunken pirate. See, I didn't report anything. I was scared, you know. Who wouldn't be? Fucking crazy-ass shit. Kind of surreal. Almost convinced myself that none of it had happened. And I guessed it didn't, because here was Kenny on the other end of the line, and he sure as hell wasn't dead, you know? Yeah, I was a fucking coward. Selfish bastard. Here's his story. He fell overboard. Fuck, surprised we both didn't, truth be told. That was some mighty fine mushrooms we'd consumed. He told me he went under and that he could see things really clearly, like a new world opening up to him. And he swam around for a while, like he was born to water, you know? After a bit, he surfaced, but I was gone. Nor he couldn't find the boat. Whatever, you know, I wasn't going to tell him that I panicked, bolted, ran the boat up onto the shore and scuttled off into the night, that I was abandoning my friend, like my old man abandoned me. So he swam to shore. It wasn't that difficult, it was easy, he said. The most natural thing in the world. But he laid low. Because he'd changed. Something deep inside him broke open. Something new and wondrous and alien. And he knew the world wasn't ready for it. For him. This was his chance to start fresh. So he moved around. Changed his life. He wasn't the same old person. Not even close. This was his second chance. Some story, huh? So we arranged to meet up at this pub downtown by the docks to catch some music, some Norwegian black death metal thing. It wasn't quite my bag anymore. I'm no kid, you see. Fuck, it'd be great to see Kenny. Great to hear his voice. The place was loud, dark, smoky, and smelled of the sea. Smelled of dead fish guts and puke. Three-piece band was on the tiny stage, pounding out some vaguely familiar speed thrash. Kenny was in a corner, he waved, a long arm beckoning. I sauntered over, took a seat. He couldn't have picked the darker corner of the bar. 
I couldn't see Kenny at all. He was a hazy shape, shifting. Then he leaned forward, and I saw his eyes. Only his eyes. Those same sad doe eyes. We flagged down a server, ordered some pitchers of beer. It was too damn loud to talk, so I drank and listened to the band. Kenny didn't touch his beer. I drank enough for the two of us. Eventually, the band took a break, and I turned to Kenny and raised my glass. Cheers, I said. An arm snaked out, and we clicked glasses. I gulped down half a beer, wiped an arm across my mouth like a thirsty pirate. Man, I'm glad to see you, I said. I really thought you were dead. Kenny's dark shadow stirred. I could smell seaweed. He spoke, and his voice vacillated between a watery tremble and a sonorous rumble, a voice of deep seas and even deeper night skies. I've never been so alive, he said. Before, I never quite fit in. I was different. I don't think I ever really belonged here. And I was right. There was something else out there. Something for me. He gestured, and through the smoky darkness I caught a faint glimmer of an arm wavering upward. But it wasn't up there, he said. It was the sea. I imagined I heard a watery chuckle. I'm a pirate of sorts. Then Kenny leaned in across the table, and I saw him for what he'd become, for what he really was. Even pirates get lonely, he said. And I thought about what it means to be a friend, to be there for someone. Thought about what I was, what I'd become. Kenny was proof that people change, that I could change. So I took Kenny home. Kenny the Kraken smiled wide. His mouth was large and deep and black. Dead things swam in its depths. His eyes were bulbous fish eyes, and they regarded me with sad alien innocence. I reached over, plugged the sink, turned on the tap. Kenny lolled in the water. He plucked a can of sardines from the refrigerator and began to feed them to Kenny. It was the least I could do for my friend. What's eating you? That old expression takes on horrifying new meaning in our second story this week, in which a group of flesh eaters make a putrid and repulsive discovery even by their standards. This is entitled The Last Supper by Donald R. Burleson. The place had a hellish appearance on a night like this. My heart was quickened both by the phantasmal landscape and by the prospect of the awesomely significant and darkly appropriate deed which lay ahead. This was Prescott Village Burial Ground, one of those ancient and obscure New England graveyards of which no aesthetically sensitive ghoul could fail to be fond, lying as it did on a rutted and little-traveled road with a weed-banked and somber-looking river flowing sluggishly behind the backmost stone fence and with nothing on either side save the untenanted and dreary stretches of rocky terrain. The graveyard itself was a ghoul's delight, extending a considerable distance back from the gate by the road and from the rickety wooden shack used by the night watchman, back over sable undulations of sparsely grass-covered ground spotted at close intervals by tombstones, which were at first the markers of relatively 
recent interments, but which became, as one progressed toward the back, older and more ill-preserved, until in the dark corner farthest removed from the road, the stones became those black slate relics which marked, with their archaic inscriptions and ponderous carvings, the slumbering places of the town's earliest settlers. This most ancient corner was to me artistically the most pleasing, especially with a hazy sky above the mound hovering willows, and especially with a faintly soughing wind which stirred the trees into a slight but charming animation. But, quite apart from such aesthetic considerations, I must confess that the newer portions of this quaint necropolis were of more direct and practical meaning to me, because in the immemorial backmost graves whose slate markers bore inscriptions belonging to the 18th century, there was now nothing of which a questing ghoul could make a morsel. The nearer and more recent graves had indeed known defilement, not only by me, by a number of my companions of kindred appetite. It was because of the untimely death of one of those nocturnal practitioners of profanation, in fact, that my surviving friends and I had come here on this special night, had come for uncommon feastings. Ghouls we all were, with such an unholy kinship of sympathetic understanding that we had never even discussed the particular night on which we must gather in solemn conclave. We had simply known, and had come. We were unseen, but we were present. The only visible motion in all this gloomy scene was the bobbing of the light as the venerable night watchman made his rounds, shuffling phlegmatically along the paths among the graves and taking copious pulls at the bottle which he kept, we well knew, close at hand. We watched in morbid and quiet amusement from our various dark hiding places, here beneath a large gnarled oak, there behind an especially broad slab, there again in the shadow of a mound. Everywhere concealment was offered. Drawing occasionally into deeper shadow as the light swung near, we watched the perambulating figure, watched even as he stepped past the very grave whose compelling interest had drawn us here together. This was the grave of Rowley Ames, whom we had all known and revered over many years of forbidden pleasure-taking. Rowley Ames, whose virtuistic command of the art of ghoulry my companions and I could only regard with profound respect and, in truth, genuine awe. He had been the master, and a young person of necrophagous inclination could do no better than to study at the side of this inspiring and inspired nocturnal lurker, observing and imitating him as he deliberated upon the time and place of his conquest, exhumed some carefully chosen subject from the charnel earth, and spent the next hour immersed in unhallowed rending and chewing, as only a truly gifted artist might. I had learned much from him myself, and I was here tonight, as were my colleagues, to pay grateful last respects, not the insipid memorials of his idiotically conventional funeral weeks before, but the one single special tribute we could best lavish upon him. We had all understood from the outset, naturally, that the unique tribute to be paid Rowley Ames must consist of our gathering at his grave for one wholly remarkable feat, the eating of his own long, monstrously nourished carcass. Of course it would be a symbolic act. There were fully twelve of us, 
the remainder of a corpse-devouring coven, minus its erstwhile leader. And for each of us, his body, especially wasted as it was by his final illness, would provide only a token ingestion. But it would be enough, and it would be, we felt, the one way that he would have wanted to be remembered. We had waited, by common tacit understanding, several weeks for a proper putrescence, and now it was time. Only the man of intellect and judgment, the gastronomer brilliant Severin had reminded us, knows how to eat. I watched with some impatience from my point of concealment, as I knew the others were watching, while the shuffling lantern-bearer completed his rounds and returned to the decrepit shack near the front gate. Before long, he had collapsed into the usual alcoholic stupor, and we emerged from the shadows to get on with our Under a pallid moon, we gathered at the grave of Rowley Ames and exchanged silent but knowing glances. The grave was situated not, of course, in the backmost archaic corner which had so appealed to his sense of aesthetic charm, but rather in the newer section amidst actual former recipients of his nocturnal attentions. Indeed, it was ironic that these two graves flanking his own were graves which, as it happened, his hands and teeth had once defiled. And now it was his turn. We had come to pay him the ultimate tribute. Words can scarcely convey the eagerness, the titillation, the sense of reverential awe with which we delved into the foul earth turning an occasional furtive eye over the shoulder to see that we were unobserved, or indulging in an occasional appreciative glance at the wan moonlit sky forming, with the phantasmal willows overhanging mossy stones, so ghastly a setting for our anticipated deed. We fairly drooled in that anticipation, our mouths working and moving, as if already busy at delectable subterranean pleasures. As we worked feverishly to uncover his coffin, my uppermost thought was sometimes my respect for my old master, and sometimes simply the gustuary ecstasy that was to come with the devouring of one who himself had fed upon countless upheaved boxes of carrion delight. And in the midst of such musings, I felt my hand reach a hard surface through the clammy soil, and I knew that the feast was to commence forthwith. Wheezing and panting with the exertion, we lifted the coffin up onto level ground and gathered about it in a circle of anxious faces. There, in that charnel scene of spectral, sickly moon, morbid landscape, and sighing night wind, we were gathered, his faithful students in unspeakable arts, ready to behold his miasmal remains, to admire, to partake. We mouthed certain blasphemous litanies appropriate to the ceremoniousness of the occasion. Pried open the It took us a few seconds to understand what we were seeing. By what unthinkable process I do not know, but by some inconceivable organic process, he lived. He lived! Rowley Ames was animate, blurring though flaggingly, as if he were now dying anew. But it was not this fact in itself that sent us precipitately scattering in revulsion and dismay, not the mere fact of his odd reanimation or the hollow sardonic laugh with which he greeted us as the coffin lid was raised. We might have been glad, on the contrary, to experience such unanticipated, unimaginable reunion with our master, 
Certainly our reaction would not normally have been to disperse headlong into the night and leave that scene at the gravesite which a reporter would describe with so much disgust in the newspaper the following day. No. What seemed insupportable to us, rather, was the fact that the consummate ghoul Rowley Ames lay there in his coffin with a hideously bloated belly, but with most of the rest of the sinewy, wormy mass of his body loathsomely gnawed away. The wretch had waited, too, until not quite so long as we, and, writhing into queer animation in his coffin, had eaten his own putrid flesh. Thank you for joining us for this episode of A Gate Beyond. Join us again in two weeks for more tales of the unusual and otherworldly, gathered from the farthest reaches of the human imagination. Until then, always go beyond. A Gate Beyond is a production of Dark Media. Special effects by Zapsplat.com. Copyright. 